This is The Social Geek Radio Network. Social Geek Podcast. I'm Jack Munson, your host and marketing Cole Celia. Today, we're kicking off year 15 of Social Geek with a look into the future of franchising for 2024. Our rock star panel includes Derek Abelman, Ali Krauss, Kristen Pahacek, Scott Greenberg, Kenneth Burke, and special guest Entrepreneur Magazine's editor-in-chief, Jason Pfeiffer. Today's episode is brought to you by Citroen Cooperman, Northeast Color, and the panel is next after a quick note from Answer Connect. How can you unlock millions in annual revenue? Don't miss out on 30% of your phone calls. At Answer Connect, they've got the solution for franchisors, franchisees, suppliers, and brokers. If you can't answer your calls, Answer Connect can. Reclaim your revenue today. If you think this would help, call my good friend Karen Booz at 888 888- 8222034 that's 8888222034 Now with our rock star panel joining us today Scott Greenberg author of the new book Stop the Shift Show Ali Kraus from Benetrends Derek Abelman from Northeast Color and Kristen Pahacek of Massage Lux Welcome back, rock stars. Good to see you all again. You too, Jack. And joining us once again is Kenneth Burke from Text Request. Hey, man, you were a big hit on the show a couple of weeks ago, and everybody said, bring that guy back. So it's good to see you again, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you. And our special guest this week is Jason Pfeiffer. He's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, and we're talking all things franchising for 2024. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, a thrill to be with you guys. So let's actually start with you. Um, sure. I know you've got the big uh, franchise 500 coming our way in in just a couple of weeks. When are we actually going to see that? Uh, so that officially drops January 16th. So because we're recording this ahead of time, I have to be very obnoxious and not give you <laughs> any answers about who's on the list. But I'm happy to talk about what we learned from the list and where we see franchise going. And I'll just say, uh, this is an intimidating space, guys, because I am definitely the least franchise expert guy uh, in this franchise expert panel. Uh, but I you know, do happen to oversee a magazine that talks quite a lot about franchising. So I'm really excited to be with and learn from all of you. Okay, well, we won't press you on who's on the list and what positions they're in this year Yeah, um, until we stop recording today, maybe. But <laughs> go ahead and, and give us a little background on some of the things you found for this version of the Franchise 500. Sure. So Franchise 500, we've been publishing this thing since 1980, which very interestingly, we always crunch some data uh, Shout out to um, Tracy Stapp Harold, who oversees the production of the list and always feeds me all sorts of great data. So it turns out that if you look at the 500 companies that ranked on our list, 419 of them started franchising in 1980 or after. 
And I was thinking about that as I was writing the intro essay for this franchise 500 because you know, franchising is this interesting contradiction to me. It is at once an industry that is in many ways about sameness. You want to make sure that you've built a system that can replicate itself. And yet at the same time, and, and, you know, and in doing so, of course, um, you're providing predictable and excellent services and products to customers, you know, so that if somebody walks into a McDonald's in Brooklyn, uh, they can expect the same services that they would have gotten in Des Moines. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you're building systems that can evolve, that can shift and change, that can be reactive to new customer needs. And so I think that what you see in a ranking of 500 brands in which the vast majority of them are coming um, after 1980 is that for all the great that sameness can deliver, if you just anchor yourself into the ground at some point, then the world passes you by. And one of the things I am always fascinated to see in our ranking is totally new spaces or trends that are developing that are strong enough that we have to start making categories for them. Um, I'll give you a couple examples. Let me see if I can find them. Yeah. So our ranking this year includes a couple new subcategories, mental health services, IV therapy, fencing, which honestly, when I first saw fencing, I was like, <laughs> do you mean like people poking each other? But no, that is not, I think actual like building fences uh, and uh, laundromats, uh, interestingly. Um, and, you know, then you go back to the the franchise 500s of the 80s and you see categories that don't exist today uh, or at least don't exist in any strong way, uh, tanning salons and uh, 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 video rentals and all that stuff. So I, I, I that in looking at the categories that show up on this ranking, you tend to get a sense of where culture is, where opportunity is. And I think that's the thing that people in franchising, people who are considering joining franchising should be thinking about the most, which is that when you're looking at the shifts that are happening in franchising, what you're really doing is evaluating where business and culture and, 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 and consumer desire is and is going, and you can make the right or at least smart bets based on what trends you're seeing. I love looking at these things historically and and looking back at at the list from you know let's say the 80s or 90s and and seeing what categories have just completely gone away and, and see a little bit of a of a of a time capsule of what culture was like back then but I really like thinking about what's the list going to look like in 5 years yeah. what are some of these emerging concepts and and categories that we we see day to day and we think that's really a franchise, but five years from now, they could be, you know, in the top 100 even. So um, yeah. th this is an exciting time of the year. You know, one of the stats that really just to talk about history for a second, one of the stats that really jumped out at me was Tracy had sent me this chart of how many brands are on the list by a decade. And, um, uh, by decade when they started franchising. So uh, the the oldest one, and I guess this isn't really giving much away because um, these brands have been on the list forever and it would have it would 
be shocking for them to just suddenly disappear. So I'll, I'll spoil a couple of things. So the oldest brand on the list uh, started franchising in 1925. That's A&W Restaurants. Love that. Z- zero brands from the 1930s are on the list. And then you jump to the 1940s and there are three brands on the list. Tell me what all these brands have in common. Dairy Queen, Carvel, Baskin Robbins all started franchising in the 1940s. Hmm. They're all ice cream. Yeah. They're all ice cream brands. I was talking with my wife about this and I was like, what was it about ice cream in the 1940s? And she hypothesized that it was World War II. And I looked into it and that's exactly correct. Uh, World War II, um, World War II was, was actually a, 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 a real moment for ice cream. Ice cream was used to uh, boost troop morale. The Navy built a ship specifically to manufacture ice cream and deliver it to uh, to the sailors. And um, and so when, uh, you know, when World War II was over and the troops came home, they came home with a love of ice cream and ice cream became this very patriotic, uh, you know, affordable luxury. And you can see I, my guess. I don't know. We're actually I was actually thinking about uh, running a piece on this in a future issue of the magazine because I'm so fascinated about it. My guess and I don't know is that Dairy Queen, Baskin Robbins and Carvel were probably just three of many, 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 many brands that ran into that space at the same time. And I'm very curious about what it was that they did that enabled them to outlast everyone else. Yeah. And even A&W could be in that same category because it was, it started just on the, on the heels of world war one. So I guess when, uh, when we go through tough times, we all run to ice cream. Yeah. Or some comfort food. So, so let's take a look at the, uh, at the year ahead because, um, I look at what's going on and the uncertainty and the economy and everything else that's that's a real challenge for franchisors right now. We might see a lot of ice cream in the next few years. Uh, <laughs> that it could be definitely an ice cream time. Does anybody have any sort of opening thoughts on um, what's going to be the biggest story of the year for 2024? Scott, let's start with you. Without a doubt, it's going to be joint employer. Like that's the biggest, most disruptive thing that has happened to the industry. It might single-handedly change the name, not just of, you know, d- redefine what an employer is, but even determine what franchising is going to be. And so there's a lot of, you know, pushback against it, but um, who knows how it's going to turn out. But franchising might be a completely different thing than we've known it to be. You've been speaking to hundreds and, and probably even thousands of franchisees at this point this year. And I know you've written on this topic quite a bit. What are the franchisees saying? Are they are they nervous about this? Is there a lot of anxiety about it? Or are they waiting to see what happens? Unlike franchisors who are across the board are, you know, con- you know concerned to freaking out, um, a lot of franchisees, it's varied. There are some, especially those who are very involved in IFA, who um, you know, support the model as it is and don't like the idea of being considered middle managers. But I've also talked to a lot of bitter franchisees who are like, why shouldn't these guys have more liability? Um, yeah. And that's how they're that's how they're looking at it. In fact, if anything, they feel like they might have less of a target on their back for lawsuits when now there are folks who are perceived to have deeper pockets. That's interesting. So we've also been talking to the IFA quite a bit about joint employer. And one of the things that Matt Howard, the president over there, said was that he he feels like there still isn't enough awareness in the franchise community about joint employer. So I'm just cognizant that we haven't actually defined it. So for listeners who aren't as familiar with it um, as just joint employer as a as a shorthand for what this is, Scott, do you want to give a quick primer? 
Yeah, sure. So, um, and again, I hope I'm going to do proud by the franchise industry. Uh, there's a lot of uh, misinformation about franchising and what it is. People think, you know, it's a pyramid scheme. There are some social media platforms that don't even allow franchising to advertise on them because they think that they're a pyramid scheme. Um, so the idea is that uh, when someone buys a franchise, they're buying licensing to use the branding to get support and services, that kind of thing, but it's independently owned and operated, which means that their employees are their employees. The franchisor doesn't vet them, doesn't meet them, doesn't manage them, doesn't pay them, and therefore should not have any liability for what those employees um, do or what management does. What joint employer uh, will say is that if you have, if a larger entity has any say at all over systems or how these employees might be managed, that they themselves are an employer. So if a, you know, a, a, an assistant manager fails to pay, run payroll and take care of overtime or sexually harasses an employer, anything goes wrong at some location in Tallahassee, Florida, um, that employee can sue McDonald's corporate in Illinois which is obviously a bigger entity, deeper pockets, that sort of thing. It also means that there can be more collective bargaining with these larger entities, even though that McDonald's corporate uh, entity may never meet those individual employees. So basically, uh, whereas right now, franchisors are guarded from what might happen at the franchisee level, uh, in this new model, they would not be which means they're probably going to pass on lots of costs to franchisees and ultimately to consumers. That also means that um, they're probably going to be have a lot more presence at the franchisee level, what they do, and need to protect themselves. Um, now, how it all turns out remains to be seen, but there is certainly reason for concern. At the very least, it'll be highly disruptive. Yeah, and there hasn't really been any legislation that that has taken hold uh, what we've seen over the past decade is one administration comes in and changes all of the rules through executive right. order. Then the next administration comes in and changes all the rules back by executive order. And then four years later, the same thing happens again. So that's kind of where we're at. And I think what what everyone involved, everyone from the IFA and the in the National Restaurant Association down to the franchisee level, I think everyone would like just some peace on this subject. Like, let's get a clear rule in place, not not an executive order, but actually law on the books that won't change every four years. And then maybe we can plan what our businesses are going to do for the next decade or so. And um, and And I don't know if in the middle of an election year, any of that's going to happen. So we might be looking at, at a 2025 situation more than anything. Kristen, uh, did you have something to add to that? Yes, I was just going to say, let's not forget what we're entering into. Um, I think that 2024 is going to be a year of whiplash, positive, negative, positive, negative. As we think about um, franchising, typically booming during economic downturn, um, you know, there's there's some, okay, this could be interesting, especially with the incoming conversations around decreases in interest rates, which we've really struggled with in 2023, right? I mean, it's expensive to borrow money right now. And so the news being out there that interest rates are going to decrease are certainly there's optimism around that. But then you think about the election coming up and candidates, um, franchise candidates saying things like, well, I just kind of want to wait and see how it turns out this fall. 
Um, I think that there's going to be a little bit of a back and forth between optimism and, and maybe not so optimistic growth projections moving into the new year for franchisors. Yeah, I totally agree with, with Kristen. To me, this 2024 seems like it's going to be the year of suspense, right? And that, that sounds negative at, at first, but but I don't think it has to be. But with all the conflicting economic indicators we're getting, are we into a recession or is it a soft landing? The ramifications of joint employer, the elections, international conflicts, the way that that can affect supply chains, food supply. Like it just feels to me like there is this persistent, provocative rustling in the dark forest, you know, all around us, but we can't as a culture, tell what that is. You know, is it a friendly face with more wood for the fire, or is it a tiger that's been attracted to our light? And it's and it may not always be the same thing. And it's it's again not necessarily a bad thing because that uncertainty can be in an ideal condition for entrepreneurship, right? Particularly franchising. Um, and I think that we are entering this phase in our culture where it's hard to determine what's happening. And so there's just activity, right? And you can make great plans, but you can't predict the weather. And so I don't think that that has to be bad, but I feel that you have to prepare yourself for expect delays, expect surprises, be ready for suspense, be ready to live in that moment and and, and not be reactive, but I think um, meet the moment. I think it's really well said. The history of turbulent times is also the history of great new winners. Uh, in, in moments of uncertainty, oftentimes large incumbents pause and smaller, more nimble organizations are able to recognize what people need now. Because here's the thing, like, even if there's massive change, that doesn't mean that people's needs stop. In fact, it might mean that people's needs go unmet. And that's a great opportunity for younger brands, for scrappy entrepreneurs, franchisees, franchisors to be thinking about how they can step up and and support. Uh, you know, you, you look back at the recession of 2008, 2009, and there were some incredible, disruptive, really clever businesses that grew out of that exact moment. Also, uh, Derek, you just mentioned international, uh, you know, and, and what's going on. So I just wanted to note another interesting stat that came out of the Franchise 500 reporting, and that is that we tally how many units of franchise were added every year, uh, and and this is it's from July to July. That's our uh, that's our our research period. So this past you know th this past research period, so that would be July uh, 22 to July 23. Um, the number of units added globally was roughly exactly the same percentage growth as the year before, but there was an interesting shift. And the shift was that um, there was an increase in US-based openings and a decrease in international-based openings, which we we assume is probably because of the, you know, the, a lot of turbulence happening internationally. Back in a moment after this word from Northeast Color. Northeast Color produces branded interior decor and custom signage solutions for the franchise industry with a special focus on value engineering. They work with franchisors to re-engineer their existing signage packages to lower costs on materials, shipping, and installation, all while maintaining the integrity of their client's brand. In short, Northeast Color literally makes things better. Learn more now at northeastcolor.com. 
Jason, I'm not sure if entrepreneur tracks this, but one of the major shifts, even you, you're talking about old recessions and brands starting and making changes. I think one of the other fascinating changes is how many brands went on into a vehicle or on wheels during mm. COVID. So we saw so many delivery services changing. And I know even just with funding, we actually had to, we were almost forced to create an entire SBA alternative program around brands that were actually in a vehicle because companies needed vehicles to not only um, be rented or leased, but also be wrapped with their branding and filled with all the materials that they needed for their brand. So we're still seeing that actually continue to grow at our company and, and be more of a need. And so I, even going into this recession, don't expect that to change at all. So Jason, again, I'm throwing you out there with a stat you might not have, but I'd be really interested to see how that changed too over the years of how many of um, the franchise brands are getting out of the brick and mortar stores and turning to vehicles? That's a great question. I wish I had a statistic for you on it. I don't, I don't know if it exists. I can tell you a couple of things. Number one is that we did some coverage coming out of COVID about the growth of, and there's definitely significant growth of franchises that are offering either work from home uh, opportunities or mobile opportunities uh, because there was a growth in people who were looking to operate that kind of business. Uh, a lot of people have become very dissatisfied with their corporate life uh, and they were looking for more flexibility in their lives and they were finding it in these particular kinds of franchises. So that was a big opportunity for a lot of these brands. And then I wish I could remember the name of this brand off the top of my head. I just don't. But um, we wrote about a donut brand that is a, is is mobile. Uh, they, they operate out of some kind of uh, trailer-like vehicle. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I wish I had prepped on this one. But anyway, uh, what I found really interesting um, uh, about that was that a lot of their growth, we, we asked them you know, what they had done within the past year to drive growth. And uh, one of the big answers was that they had brought the vehicle manufacturing in-house because as a result, they were able to be much more responsive to the growth needs of their franchisees because many of them got in to the business with one vehicle. And then three months later, they had enough demand that they needed a second one. And when this brand was operating through a third party, it took a lot longer to get them new vehicles. So they brought the manufacturing in-house and that led to a lot of growth because there was that exact demand that you're talking about. But I, I, that's all anecdotal. I wish I had something more specific. It's always interesting to hear those stories about brands like that, that are actually now in the automotive industry with a mm. side of donuts. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and Ali, I think where you're going to with the, with the mobile and, and other types of services that are not brick and mortar that also plays into sort of the third thing that everyone's nervous about right now. And that's real estate. Um, at the uh, restaurant finance and development show a few weeks ago in Vegas, the, the the talk of the show was cash, real estate, and government. You know, aside from those three things, everything's terrific in franchising right now. But uh, real estate seems to be something that a lot of um, a lot of operators are really nervous about when it comes to developing uh, your your next location. Scott. Certainly here in Los Angeles, the real estate market has cooled, but there are some franchise brands that actually do well when the real estate market uh, cools, such as home staging, you know, show homes, the company work with when realtors mm -hmm. are having a hard time moving inventory, then they want to pay for staging. Um, I'm actually speaking to a franchise brand in a few months called Homadi, and they specialize in drone photography for 
real estate agents. And again, there's an inverse relationship between how well the real estate market's doing and how well they do. So I think in any circumstances, as Jason was saying, there's an opportunity for someone, either to what they're already doing or for those who innovate. And by the way, I'll just add, because I looked it up while you were talking, the brand I was talking about was Donut NV. Uh, that's NV like Nevada, but I suppose now that you say it out loud, I guess it's Donut Envy, Envy. which is clever. Uh, and uh, <laughs> anyway, they're making uh, custom-made trailers. That's what they had brought in-house. I was going to say, Jason, I knew who you were talking about, actually. The Donut Envy brand is so cool. And they actually, their trailers, just using them as an example, needed windows low enough for children to see the donuts being made. Ah. So talk <laughs> about getting innovative. And back to you telling the ice cream story, it made me think of all the ice cream brands that tried to innovate and didn't make it. The ones that were those those special trends in ice cream. But look at the Carvels of the world that are still ranking on the 500 after all this time because they they stuck with traditional and they stuck with their brand and and that's franchising. But I love what Donut Envy did with they actually needed those vehicles, right? So really really cool way. That's its own marketing because I think that was your original question, Jack. Is how are people marketing and and what are they doing? And um, I I know that Kenneth wanted to jump in, so I'll turn it over in a second. But a few days ago, I was actually at the SM event, their annual event where they had all of their young emerging brands out to network and get together out here in Pennsylvania. And one of the most common things I heard from the CEOs and the C-suite people of these brands are also that they're being very picky in what states they're actually marketing and growing in now. So that normal, oh, we'll go anywhere quote, normal, I think is changing a lot, a little bit because of joint employer, a little bit because it's a struggle to get FDDs approved in, in different states. And um, so it was fascinating for me to hear because I heard it from so many different people from different brands that were completely unrelated in industry. So I think that's a really interesting approach for marketing going into 2024 too, is really focusing on geographical um, areas that make sense for whether you need real estate or don't, but um, real, really interesting tactic for some of these emerging brands to grow smart. Kenneth, let's go to you with more marketing chat. What are you seeing right now? Uh, something I think we've we've all seen, but just to, to highlight it and point it out is it tough times like this have a tendency to um, to highlight and expand the disparity between the good and the great. And so you're seeing, or we're seeing at least um, anecdotally, I'd be, I'd love some data around this more so, but we're seeing a lot of brands who have been good, who are, um, you know, they're surviving or they're doing okay. And this could go for a franchise or could go for a franchisee. And then we're seeing uh, the great ones, I would say, just for, you know, labeling, um, who are able to take this opportunity to, uh, you know, get better talent or more good talent because they've built a strong culture. They're able to um, expand re, uh, real estate because they, they've got nice cash reserves and a good credit. Um, they're able to you know market more effectively because they've gotten really good at building an audience and building a community. Um, and all these little things, you know, whenever they're pressure tested, really show up. Um, and it's, it's interesting to watch. I think we're going to see more of that going into next year, especially you were talking about uh, market spending, you know, so the ones who have been doing great, they're able to get uh, to get a good return on anything they spend. So they'll keep doing it. The ones who've just been good, it's kind of iffy. Um, so they'll have to, to go back to the drawing board and figure out some things. Let's talk about what else is going to pop in 2024 when it comes to 
brands or categories. Uh, we've talked a lot about ice cream and donuts. I, I, I don't think any of that's going to slow down. But but what else is really going to jump in 2024? Kristen? I'll counter that. I actually think that the health and wellness movement is going to be even more exaggerated in, yes, exactly, in, um, in the next year here. So while we've seen people indulge after tough periods in history, um, I feel that after this most recent tough period going through the pandemic, people are really prioritizing health, wellness, self-care more so than ever before. I actually just read a stat that said 70% of people won't cut spend related to health and wellness despite economic downturn or slim funds. And I think that that's pretty powerful. I think people are thinking a lot more proactively about health than reactively and uh, the brands that can capitalize on that will have a shining year, I believe. I agree with you, Kristen. And I think that you mentioned the pandemic. And, and I think that the effects of that are still reverberating throughout our culture, throughout all industries. And, and I think that when we look at pet care, for example, the, the huge spike in pet ownership that occurred, there's, that industry isn't going anywhere. That's going to continue to be rock steady. Um, I think wellness, absolutely. Fitness is attached to that. And I would also say that home services is, is huge right now, given the housing market and the fact that, you know, there isn't enough stock and people are trapped in renting situations. Those who have a house are going to continue to invest in it. That will become their new investment property. That will become their nest egg. That is everything now. And, and I think, I mean, if I were going to buy a franchise, that's the direction I would be looking in because that's a permanent position to be in. Yeah, Kristen, you, know, you mentioned the word indulge. And I think outside of ice cream and, and treats and things like that, the health and wellness category is a great place for people who really want to indulge and take care of themselves and feel good about something. And I think we saw a lot of that during the pandemic too, that people weren't going and doing a lot of the same things. Maybe they weren't flying to Paris once a year, but they, they were definitely going to go get a massage or definitely go spend a day at the spa and that kind of thing. Got to feel good somehow. That's right. <laughs> I'll just offer a quick case study on that. Ellie Mental Health, which is the the, the growth really tells a story there, uh, you know, to back what Kristen is saying. So first franchise location, July of 2022. By the end of that year, it had 37. To date, Ellie has sold wow. more than 600 franchise agreements. Wow. That is fast. And it's because they're finding an incredible need out there for it. Yeah. Talk about uh, filling a need and, and finding a gap in something happening in this country right now. That's amazing. Um, any other thoughts on, um, on, on brands or categories that, uh, that might explode again, Kenneth? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, reiterate what Derek said is I think home services are going to be, have maybe the best opportunity to really catapult. Um, partially because so many people bought homes whenever uh, interest rates were low and they're going to be there for a long time. And then combine that with, um, in general, there's a continual trend towards done-for-you services. Um, so the less I have to think about it, the more it's just done for me. Um, you know, the more whatever. It, it That's growing. And then um, also combine that with the fact that more and more of us are, are knowledge workers. And especially through the pandemic, you saw a lot of people switch to uh, knowledge work. And now we need help with these, you know, manual labor jobs or these what would traditionally be blue collar work. 
um, but actually can have some really good profit margins for skilled tradesmen. So I think that's going to be um, one to watch over the next few years. Yeah, I'm not sure about home services. I'd love to see it continue to do well. Um, but I also know that, you know, if interest rates are high, people might be more reluctant to want to dip into their home equity lines, which is how a lot of people pay for that. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not an, an economist or a behavioral economist, but, you know, I'm not so sure. But one industry that really seems to be certainly on my radar is um, sort of private college counselors where people pay a third mm. party, like Class 101 is a, a well-known mm -hmm. one. Uh, to help their kids, you know, navigate that whole process. You know, we Gen Xers, it's our kids now that are going to college and we're idiots when it comes to just throwing money at our kids for every single thing. And certainly getting them into college is a big part of that. So keep my eye on that one. Yeah, I uh, I think the, the home services thing could be interesting because even though they're not going to dip into those funds to, you know, get their windows redone or, or something like that, at the same time, you may not be moving right? You may not be buying a new house anytime in the near future. And, and, and I think maybe with automotive too, you know, there's a lot of automotive aftermarket brands that are doing really well right now because people are not buying cars or even buying newer used cars that, as they were five years ago. So, so some of those could do well, Jason. Oh yeah. I just wanted to pick up on that because the, the pandemic response, the, the opportunities that were driven by the pandemic were really fascinating. They made all the sense in the world when they happened, but I think would have been hard to predict. One of them was the amount of money that people spent on their homes, renovating their homes, updating their homes, because everyone was stuck at home. And so they just started thinking about how they could improve that space. And then that started to even work its way outside. So for example, there was an incredible growth in mosquito control franchises at that time, because again, people are at home and now they're outside or get bit up and they're annoyed because they're not usually out there as much as they were before. So what I took away from that was there can be growth in places that that are unpredictable beforehand, but have a real world logic once you see them happening. And the real money is made by people who can anticipate those shifts. Excellent. Any other predictions for 2024? Maybe not new brands or 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 new categories, but anybody else have uh, have anything that they think is going to happen within the franchise industry? Maybe it's around events or marketing or any of the other things that we didn't really touch on so far today. One more thought, only because it just has been happening for years, and I don't see why it would change. Is consolidation mm. more and more bigger fish swallowing up slightly smaller fish? I just think that's going to continue. Yeah, I think every brand we talk to at some of the big events, um, they're they're sort of one foot in the mergers and acquisition mode, right? And and they're and one of the reasons that they're at events is to get out in front of potential uh, platform companies that uh, that might be snapping them up. So we see a lot of that. Jason, AI, we're running a big feature in the franchise five hundred issue about the early but very telling ways in which AI is making its way through franchising in, in every possible way you know, from that you're going to be speaking to a robot when you pull up at a Carl's Jr. Uh, drive-through to really interesting stories about machine learning where brands are putting cameras throughout its, uh, you know, its production system and also outside to watch foot traffic and uh, AI is helping them become more efficient in their operations. So we're just at the very beginning of seeing that. 
Jason, one of the questions I had on my list going into this conversation was when are we going to see the first AI first franchise? Hmm. What would that even mean? It's got to be something. I mean, your suggestions about, you know, restaurants um, using it instead of, of people um, is interesting. Although um, well, ghost kitchens that, seem to be on the downturn, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mean, I don't mean that AI is replacing all people. Uh, I just mean that if you pull like it, Carl's jr. Is, is, is testing this out right now. And they're not the only ones that if you pull up at a drive through this and you, you, you know, you, you talk to the speaker that you're talking to a automated voice, not to a human and that, you know, there's still plenty of people at that Carl's jr. It's a good question. I, I mean, look, I don't believe I, I, I'm, I'm very bullish on AI. I'm, I'm really excited about it. In fact, our, our December cover was created by AI, and so, but, but I think here's my metaphor for AI. I think that we, we, we spend a lot of time talking about AI replacing everything, and I think that's really the wrong way to think about it. AI is like a microwave, right? Think about it, the microwave. Microwave, incredible technology. Uh, we don't pause enough to reflect about how amazing it is to have a box in our kitchen that can heat things up. Try to explain that to somebody in the 1800s. It's unbelievable. It's incredible technology, but also you don't make every meal in it. You don't make a gourmet meal in a microwave. It is a tool that we use and we make the mistake with AI and with literally every other technology that has ever come along in thinking that it is going to replace literally everything that came before it. And it never does. It integrates. We find the tool and the way to use that tool. And then we, the humans, control how it's used. And we find new creative ways to use it. And that'll be the same with AI too. So I, I, there'll be great uses for AI throughout franchising. I predict that it will make, and sorry if you hear my kids screaming in the background, they just got home. It'll make uh, it'll make business more efficient. It'll lead to growth. It'll lead to new opportunities. I'm not really worried about it replacing everybody. And definitely not replacing podcasts quite yet. Anyway, Kristen. <laughs> yeah, so I think, you know, we mentioned the campaign coming up. I think we're going to see a lot of brands decide to front load their spend, both in the consumer and franchise development space to the first six months of the year in order to try to break through before the chaos ensues. And, um, you know, you got two different types of people, right? The people who are going to not go on any social media or turn on the TV or flip open a magazine or do anything, um, during the last six months of the year as the craziness continues. But um, then you have the other people who are going to be super engaged in all of those things because they are, you know, heavily interested in, in the drama. And so as a brand, you're kind of stuck with when do I spend? How do I spend? And if I am going to choose to spend where there's a certain population really dialed in in the back half of the year, how much am I going to have to spend to break through because uh, our budgets don't look like political candidate budgets. And so breaking through may be a challenge. Yeah. Your cost per lead in September and October could be really interesting. So I, uh, I love that idea of let's look at the first six months of the year and see what we want to do there. And, and, and let's, let's fill those pipelines with new candidates. So we have someone to sell in the second half of the year because Boy, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a little crazy in in the world of Meta and Google and everybody else in in uh, September, October, November. So, thank you for that. Any final predictions or thoughts on twenty twenty four? You know, I mean, as we head into this new year, 
we, we do get to decide whether we see doom or opportunity in this next year, in all of this uncertainty and all of this, these unknowns. And, you know, we're, we're all the grateful descendants of that paranoid monkey that decided, you know, rightly or wrongly that the rustling in the bush was a tiger and reacted accordingly. And I think that there's a difference between skepticism and pessimism. And there's a difference between caution and cynicism with skepticism and caution. Those things are about looking deeper and seeking more information before arriving at a judgment. But with cynicism and pessimism, the judgment is baked in. So we'll only ever see indicators that confirm that assessment, right? So whatever may be approaching in this year, whatever is rustling in the dark of the forest, I think that we need to remember that we're standing by the fire together and that's how we'll face what comes next. Before we go, a quick word from Citroen Cooperman. Citroen Cooperman is proud to be the home of one of the leading franchising practices in the country. With over 40 years of franchise experience, Citroen Cooperman provides a full range of services to a vast number of franchise concepts. They work with the owners, operators, controllers, and CFOs of a wide range of franchisors and multi-unit franchisees to help them establish their brands and grow their businesses to the next level. The Citroen Cooperman Franchise Practice is comprised of experienced CFE-accredited professionals, providing franchisors and multi-unit franchisees the guidance and insight they need to minimize uncertainty, meet compliance and contractual obligations, and stay focused on building their businesses. For more information, please contact Aaron Chaitovsky and Michael Iannuzzi at CitroenCooperman.com. And thank you for listening and staying connected on the Social Geek Radio Network.